Today's Untold is with Francesco Galli Zagaro, the Aquaman. Post-college, Italian-American Francesco followed many of his peers into the world of investment banking with roles in New York and London. Always a keen networker, a chance interview in Ecuador on the same day of his wedding saw Francesco and new wife Brigitte relocate to South America from London, with Francesco handed the reins as head of a telecoms company. Faced with a tough business climate, beset with lots of politics, Francesco was later transferred to head up the small boat cruise division, with a fresh license overseeing cruises to the Galapagos Islands, which along with Machu Picchu were and continue to be the main tourism attractions of the continent. With both Peruvian and Ecuadorian economies booming and Francesco getting restless, a vacation discussion with his father-in-law, himself a successful businessman, saw the ideation of Aqua Expeditions, which followed with the maiden launch of Aria Amazon just nine months later. Despite the global financial crisis, the launch was hugely successful and the small ships offering luxury, design, great culinary and authentic destination experiences proved to be heavily in demand. Following this success, critical acclaim and popularity, Francesco looked east to provide a new itinerary that would allow for repeat visitation. He settled on a new global headquarters in Singapore and a new boat, the Aqua Mekong, offering exciting itineraries across Vietnam and the Kingdom of Cambodia. 12 years later, Aqua Expeditions have four ships and are not slowing down anytime soon. Indeed, they've doubled the ship total during COVID following the addition of Aqua Blue and Aqua Nera. This story captures Francesco's relentless energy, passion and entrepreneurial spirit and gives some super insights to his views on hotels, restaurants, safari lodges, destinations, as well as approach to leadership and management. Enjoy Untold with Francesco. Thank you very much, Francesco. My understanding is, is that you and your wife, Brigitte, always have had a love for travel, but that whilst it was your passion, your early career was largely around the, the financial industry. Is it possible to share a little about what you were doing in the investment banking world and then the eureka moment that you decided to exit and, and actually that working in finance wasn't your life plan and that you wanted to develop a successful travel career. Gladly, Gareth, and thanks for letting me share my story today. And hopefully it'll, um, I don't know, maybe inspire some to take that big leap of faith into the unknown and to finding out what, what our calling truly is. But you're, you're correct. After graduating from uh, college in Boston in the US where I met my wife, my girlfriend at the time, my wife now, um, many moons ago, I decided as the calling, everybody was going into investment banking. It was the big hoo-ha, go and work in New York and do investment banking and do big deals and become an analyst. And, and I did that. I, I, I went and did it in London after taking a backpacking trip around the world after uh, a year in New York. But I, I quickly realized that whilst I had this uh, competitive side to me, I just didn't want to fall into that, that, that race at the time. I thought I had a, an opportunity to explore. I grew up uh, with a father who worked in travel and we moved around. Uh, I think I've lived in so far 17 countries to date, many of which were as a result of my dad and my stepdad because my stepdad is, uh, was at the time bureau chief for Time Magazine. And so we were moving around a lot. I grew up in, mostly in Europe, the Middle East, and then in the Americas. 
But all that came to fruition when living in London, working in finance, I was working with a risk management firm, a German private risk management firm and doing presentations in Bahrain in Oman and Switzerland and Italy to central banks. And I really realized that whilst it was intriguing, interesting at the, at the time, when I decided to pop the question and be engaged, uh, and I was engaged in Bali doing our backpacking trip, I decided, okay, let's get married. Well, she said, yes, obviously. And then we decided to get married in Quito, Ecuador. And in Quito, Ecuador, why Quito? Because my girlfriend at the time, my wife now of uh, 30 years, um, grew up in Ecuador. Her parents were are British and Peruvian, but uh, Fred, my father-in-law, was head of Deloitte and Touche in South America, and he opened up the Lima office, then the Quito, Ecuador office. So Birgit grew up in Ecuador. We said, let's go get married in Quito, a beautiful colonial old part of South America. The center of Quito is probably one of the most beautifully restored colonial cities in South America. We decided to get married in this beautiful convent there. And whilst I was there in South America, so let's take the big leap of faith and try interview for jobs. So I started interviewing for jobs. And on the morning of my wedding, I interviewed for one particular position, which was kind of a private equity investment group, an Ecuadorian group. And they had uh, invested in multiple sectors. And they said, come on over. We'd like you to run a telecom startup. Uh, satellite-based uh, te Israeli technology, which was a telecom startup. And I was living in London at the time. I said, okay, I'll let me go back, pack up my things and come over and start. And we took the big leap over the pond from UK over to, um, to South America. And that was my big first leap into changing countries and sectors. And then that developed into the opportunity into the travel space, which I can answer in a few it, further down in the interview. But that was my big, big leap of faith. We had no kids, we had no mortgage, we had nothing else but what we you know, were living with in London. So it was a relatively um, easy decision to make and one that one can make when you're you know, 24 and recently married. Were you more interview uh, more nervous for the interview or for the the nuptials? If you come oh, both on the same day, yeah, definitely the job interview. I, <laughs> I love interviewing. I think I'm one of the few that actually uh, love the process of finding jobs, networking. I found you know one skill I try to instill upon my kids today is the power of networking and the power of understanding how to raise capital. I think those are two skills that I've tried to instill upon my kids that no matter what you do in life, you're always going to have to understand the power of networking and, uh, and the power of being able to raise capital and know where to fund projects because everybody's got incredible ideas, but to make those ideas realities, whilst you may want to put some of your own skin in the game in whatever you do, you always want to fund it with external capital and understanding how that works and there's incredible opportunities for raising capital around the world. Um, that's that's a key to success. So hopefully I learned that early on and my kids are hopefully learning that today. Excellent. W working closely with Brigitte, your wife. Sorry, sorry if there's mispronunciation. Who, oh, no. who, who, clear, clearly very talented and integral to the boat design and the experience when guests are, are on board. And you've obviously got an incredibly strong marriage and I was said at least pre-quarantine, but you're not in a small single room like most people I've spoken to in quarantine. So I'm sure you're both going to be okay. Could you tell us a bit about that year when you traveled around the world and and how it was changed how it changed both of you ultimately? Because obviously you embarked together on going out and, and a, a year trip obviously is transformational in some way. In many ways, and be beyond the fact that it's a pure testing of the relationship, because obviously, like many people would under understand, it's a true test to uh, to the longevity of a future relationship. I didn't look into it in that way when I popped the question on her to, hey, do you want to take a trip around the world? We were living in New York at the time, recently graduated. We were saving up to take this big trip and we took a leap and said, okay, let's take a backpacking trip around the world. We started off in New York, headed down south to South America, bust, you know, Peru to Lima, did the whole traditional Galapagos, Machu Picchu, all that. And we headed then out to the Far East. And um, but after returning to to um, to to sort of work in uh, in in London at the time, after a year, obviously we had 
you know, we had grown up traveling a lot. Like I said, uh, I speak four languages, I've traveled the world. And, um, but we knew that our calling was somewhat to that extent. Uh, we, our dream was to actually move to Buenos, be, split our time between Argentina and own uh, antique shops because we loved the idea of buying and collecting beautiful things around the world that we wanted to buy and keep the nicest ones. And then the ones that we didn't want to keep, we'd sell in antique shops. And we thought, what an amazing idea to open an antique shop somewhere like in a place like Megev in France because we saw this beautiful antique shop and this guy would live half the year in Megev, sell beautiful antiques, ski in the morning, open the antique shop in the afternoon, and the rest of the year he'd travel around the world buying beautiful pieces, keeping the nicest ones in his home. I was like, wow, that sounds like a dream job. And then, so, so that was actually our first uh, uh, foray into the idea of an entrepreneurship. Uh, but then things led to another and we moved to South America. And yes, we have an ability to obviously demonstrate that we work very well together. And whilst it's, it's, we're more, I think we're more the exception than the norm, um, I think we found what not only do we perfectly agree on many things regarding style, design, service, but we've also experienced a lot of these things together. And so the standards were set together. And I think we've only known that standard. And that's what the standard that we apply to when we when guests embark on our ships. So I think it's just we started off from a similar footing that just led to this 30-year relationship where today uh, decisions are made easily. Uh, we support each other and we can delegate to each other what our, our our, our strengths are and, and, and make the team with the teamwork, the dream works, right? Thank you, Francesco. So, so we've left you in South America joining a, a telecoms business, and then you became a sales and marketing director for small ship expedition company, but, but really specializing in the Galapagos Islands. So the Galapagos Islands, tell us a little as to why everyone needs to add that to their bucket list but I think you were there about a decade. So you really got to understand the business from A to Z. Can you tell us a little bit, little bit about your time escorting VIP groups and trips to, to that part of the world? Yeah, so if your um, listeners until now have been utterly confused about my jumping around, which I'm sure they are, let me try and set the scene again. So I've arrived in South America, recently married, moved to start up a telecom company at the age of 24. I did this for three, four, up to five years, actually, and, and then got slightly burnt out just because dealing with the, with the public sector in South America, while there's great opportunities because the infrastructure at the time needed a major re revamp, there is, as a salesperson, it's very hard to get your, your success when so many decisions are not purely based on your capabilities to close, when there's so many external factors regarding politics and public sector um, uh, sales. So once the group decided to divest into different sectors, we bought licenses as a group. You buy licenses to operate in the Galapagos, and an opportunity came up to own licenses, uh, bring a ship, an expedition ship. And, and they, they basically looked to the group and they approached me and said, listen, you speak four languages, you've traveled the world. You know, do you wanna take this on as an undertaking to help launch this business in the Galapagos? We had two ships at the time. They still operate today. One of them at least definitely does. And there were 48 passenger expedition ships in the Galapagos. I went to Puerto Llora, the main island of Santa Cruz there. And um, I said, sign me up. Yeah, I definitely love the idea. I know nothing about small ship expedition cruising, but I knew that the Galapagos was a door opener to the region. Actually, it was probably the door opener to, the, to Latin America. That, together with Machu Picchu, are the big draw factors. And, um, and I saw that this was an opportunity for me to travel, continue traveling, selling, which I enjoyed, and I thought I had a good knack for it, and then sell something I was passionate about. And so for the ensuing six years, I ran all the sales and marketing for this business, helped refit, rebrand re it, launch the brand, establish relationships with the trade. And those relationships today are still relationships that actually sell into our expeditions, my current business. 
But you know, Galapagos is known for being an iconic conservation world heritage site. It's where Darwin discovered his theory of evolution. And yes, if it's not on the bucket list, it definitely needs to be because the natural instinct of fear of flora of the of the fauna, the flora and fauna there has disappeared. And so the wildlife has no relationship with fear. And so you basically have to walk around the blue-footed boobies or the frigates or the sea lions come up to you in the water or you're swimming with penguins on one bay and with flamingos on the other one. So I think that this is a living laboratory of evolution. And there's very few places in the world where this kind of relationship between conservation and wildlife works perfectly and definitely Galapagos is one of them. And so it's very easy to fall in love and what better place to cut my teeth into sort of high-end expedition cruising than Galapagos. And that was just the beginning of what ends up being you know, a lifelong commitment to this space, this niche and this type of travel. Perfect, perfect bridge. Thank you for, for bringing us uh, up, to, up to speed with the, the, the move into tourism. So then back to 2007, you launched Aqua Expeditions, initially with Aqua Amazon um, and then Aria Amazon, with Peru um, commencing lux luxury expeditions along the Amazon River. So could you take, take us through the process involved? Because you obviously, that's a, a period of a number of years from boat construction to starting to sell and launch the business. So is it possible just to cover a couple of milestone moments of that incredible development? Yeah, gladly. So yes, you brought us up to date. It's 2007. I'm sitting in a rented house on the beach on the border of Ecuador and Peru in a great surfing spot called Mancora. I'm looking, comparing newspapers. Elections are coming into Ecuador. Uh, Peru's growing, growing double-digit growth, GDP growth into tourism and in the entire economy is just booming. So I thought, you know what? It's time to make a move. I was working endless hours, loving what I was doing in the Galapagos. It just wasn't my baby. And I thought, okay, if I'm going to put in the hours and I, and I realized that I became a workaholic um, I said okay let's make the take that leap of faith so I sat there on the on this cabana with my father-in-law actually at the time and still today my father-in-law and partner and we started building a business plan for what would be a small ship expedition company based out anywhere and we started exploring South America I went shortly thereafter I built the business plan this is during Christmas, February 6th, 2007. I resign my job without knowing exactly what I was going to do. And I get on a plane, I head to Lima, and I was told I got to go explore the Amazon, the Peruvian Amazon. So I arrive in Lima. Everybody at the time now was buying Machu Picchu and Galapagos. Everybody packages up Machu Picchu Galapagos, and still today is a big. But the Amazon, people have heard of the Amazon. People have know that the Amazon is, exists, but they think of Brazil as the Amazon. They think, okay, I, I connote and I relate Amazon with Brazil. Many, many people don't know that the Amazon is born in South America, but in particular in the Peruvian Amazon, in the Peruvian Andes. And it flows through numerous countries, Colombia, Ecuador, Peru, and Brazil. And so I went up to the Amazon in Peru. I scouted the destinations. I came back, jaws open, having fallen in love with this seasonally flooded forest called the Pacaya Samidia, which is a mirrored forest, seven, two million acres, only accessible by water. And so I went back to Lima. I said, I know where we're going. We're heading to the Amazon, pack up, sold our house. My, I sold my house one week. My in-laws sold their house the next week. And off we moved to Lima, families in tow, set up the business, uh, called up my PR from New York, called up my, uh, my branding company and said, we got to build a brand. We got to start building a, a strategy around launching this business. And, and at the same time, I'm managing this, working out of Starbucks and vans in Lima as I move around finding chefs and finding architects. I'm, I'm negotiating to buy a hull and all this so that by March, by April, April 2008, I've got heads in beds on our first cruiser, the Aqua Amazon, operating in the Pacaya Samita Reserve. All this in a span of nine months from when I resigned to having first guests. So you can imagine the energy that went into it. But And, and this all, remember, 2008 is global financial crisis. So um, what better way to inaugurate? But at the time, you know, 12 cabins, really high end. Our demographic of guests, as COVID has shown, the, the demand for interest to travel is still there. Obviously, it's been bottled up. But at the time, 2008, to fill 12 cabins 
was, uh, was relatively painless because we were capturing a demographic of guests that always wanted to travel. They may travel less, but they're not gonna sacrifice the style in which they travel. And that, that, that brings us up to 2008 with the launch of Aqua Amazon. Yeah, excellent. And do you recall a moment where you, obviously the nine months would have passed very quickly given you had to set everything up, but you would have got a bit of an idea of forward bookings and forward sales. Do you, do you recall a moment where you're, you would have, from a mental perspective, progressed from worrying about whether the business was viable because you've got the additional pressure of the relationship being your father-in-law. So, so you obviously want to maintain this investment but do you, do you know where you that suddenly went from not only have I got a viable business, but we can grow and we can add, like you just said, an additional ship? Yeah, I think uh, there's there's many of those moments and those aha moments, those wow moments. I think as an entrepreneur, you can use and hold on to those to push you along because you're not copying, um, you know, an, a modus operandi book of some other competitor and say, okay, I'm just going to execute this and it's going to go well. You're kind of treading new ground. So as a founder and as an entrepreneurial led founder business, you have to get the people that are starting to work with you to believe that vision and to share that vision and that my why, you know, I don't know if you know of a, of a well-known speaker called Simon Sinek, but has to be turned into their why and we have to share that why. And so it's super important as an entrepreneur to be able to do that at the time so that it's not, it's not a solo job anymore. This is a team effort. So what I did is whilst we were building the Aqua Amazon and the Amazon, I brought in some of my key suppliers and I brought a &K, one of my top clients still today. I brought their, their marketing team, their CEO, the global director, and I brought him to Iquitos to the shipyard and I said, here she is, here's the bare bones, Aqua Amazon about to be launched in four months, tell me what you think. And I basically walked them through the skeleton of the ship, explaining to them the cabin size and the suites and the dining. And I took them to the restaurant in Lima where Pedro Miguel, our chef still today, our consulting chef, explained to them the, the dining concept from Amazon to table. And, and that was hell, we can sell this, we can definitely sell this, because originally my plan was to have smaller ships based on the Kerala houseboats in India, which was going to be two bedroom suites on private ships, as in just two bedroom ones that you hire up privately. And then having talked to many clients, I said, no, build it and we will come. And, and I took this leap of saying, okay, we'll do a 12 cabin cruiser and then started pre-selling it with just, you know, I recall conversations in trade shows in Vegas and in Cannes where our big trade shows that, you know, we all go to where I'd be selling a concept of this luxury expedition ship, this river cruiser with renderings, beautiful renderings of this new company called Aqua Expeditions that no one had heard of. And, and still today, those agents come up to me saying, Francesco, I remember you having a little corner, a table in a standing can launching this idea of this 12 cabin cruiser and we believing your passion. And, and I think the key was to have that grit, that what I call passion and perseverance, because that's very easily not only conveyable, but it's undeniable and people just get consumed by that. And, and that helped me a lot, have that, that passion for what I was doing. And I still do have a lot of that. Well, the, the passion's always evident whenever, whenever meeting you anywhere in the globe. Could you talk a little yeah. bit about the small ship experience and, and really how different the guest experience is compared to some of the larger cruise vessels that potentially people might be more aware of and the focus that you place on culinary, design, nature, wildlife, services and, and of course conservation gladly gladly so i think i think what we've always tried to do and obviously as we started and then we've hopefully gotten better is to position the brand in the right market and whilst we are you know floating boutique uh, expedition ships or small luxury expedition vessels we've always tried to we've always known where we sit but it's also about defining and redefining more than ever especially during COVID times to define that tone of voice, 
because I think people, whilst nobody confuses us with with mainstream expedition, mainstream cruising, we are actually more in the experiential kind of safari style experiences. So we're always going for that soft adventure demographic of guests, those guests that want that have that adventurous spirit, but want to sacrifice some creature comforts during the day, but not in the evening when they're back on board and definitely not during their meals. So to 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 have that happy marriage of what I called an affluent explorer, which is a type of description of our guests. These are guests that have traveled the world. They've been to tiger camps in India. They've been to, they've been to safaris in Africa. They've done Galapagos. They've done, or they want to do uh, Antarctica. These are the type of guests that we're catering to and that we're approaching and that we're targeting. And, and every day, more so than ever, people are willing to go out and step outside their boundary of comfort as long as, because that's when they have those wow moments, when they're pushed a little bit over the edge of that comfort zone, but knowing that that nine to five adventure uh, turns off at five for their happy hour and, and turns back on at nine in the morning the next morning. And blending that and finding that mix, I think we've done extremely well. And that all has to be done in a context of contemporary design, um, world-class service, world-class guides, uh, an area of more than ever, obviously responsible tourism, both an operator ourselves as we operate, as we hire, as we procure, as we source and as we protect and, and all that with, with a sense of adventure. And, and packaging that well and, and finding that right mix, I think we've done extremely well because guests more than ever, even today, all we've had to do to stay relevant is to make sure that the core of what we do hasn't changed. We've just highlighted it more than ever that yes, all our group, all our group excursions on all our ships are no more than eight guests. And so while people come back to travel now as border restrictions ease up, people get vaccinated and we get a control of this crazy pandemic, people want all these core core uh, non-negotiables of ours, which are small group journeys, remote destinations, wildlife focused, responsible, uh, socially responsible travel, all this within an area of safety, reassurance, and world-class service. That's exactly what we've been doing all along, and that's quite different from main mainstream cruising. So there's never been a confusion. Most of our guests have never been on big ships and probably will never go on big ships. And I, I, I love cruising in general, no matter what the size is, but we know that our clients are more the, the sort of the soft adventure clients. And, and every, day, every day we see a younger, younger audience appealing to us. So. Absolutely. And, and when people are talking about revenge travel and, and post-COVID, there being pent-up demand, I think a mentality very much is going to be bring forward the bucket list and let's go to these destinations because people always assume that they can go whenever they want. And this big period of time where everyone's needed to stay in the country that they're actually from shows people that you know why put things off you need to get out and you need to travel because that that privilege may be taken away if there's a future pandemic or something unseen can happen yeah i mean i agree with you and to, to that effect i mean as long as we're you know our communication has to be not the right tone only but also cannot be tone deaf i mean we can't be oblivious to what's going on around the world however within that context as long as you communicate it effectively that you're being responsible that you're taking the right precautions that you're providing the right uh, environment safety and reassurance to our guests and for our crew and suppliers then you can still travel. I just got back, you know, three days ago from an incredible 10-day safari to the Namibian skeleton coast, where in the lodge we were at, it was 12 cabins, 12, you know, beautiful um, uh, lodge uh, villas. And of this eight nights we were there, five nights there were 100% occupancy. And these these were guests from the US, from Mexico, from South Africa, from Denmark and Germany. These are guests that were taking the right precautions. Everything was being met and complied for as far as safety and reassurance, but people still want to travel. Obviously more than ever into destinations like ourselves or Africa or South America. Um, and especially now that there's a more of a feeling of um, you know, assurance given the protocols that are implemented. So. It's still in our blood. We're creatures of habit, all of us globally. Are we gonna be slightly more conscious and will our travel style to a certain degree adjust and adapt? Yes, but at the end, we are creatures of habit. Thank you. So then there was a, an amazing move from continent. So you had your boat in Peru, an office in Lima, and you moved to Asia, basing yourself in Singapore from an office perspective and obviously launching the Aqua Mekong 
which stops in Cambodia and Vietnam. So this was bold and ambitious, but what was the contributory factor rather than just adding to the boats and inventory on the Amazon that actually you said, right, let's head east and let's conquer a different market? Yep, again, uh, as you can see, my appetite for risk is still there and continues to be there and will continue to, uh, to um, show its, uh, its face in the coming years as well as I continuously grow the business. But yes, it was a big leap. Appetite for risk is still there, but it's a healthy appetite for risk. As an entrepreneur, obviously, we have to take these decisions as we want to grow our business. So I'm sitting in Lima, looking at a good book of business, good visibility into future bookings into our business. But, you know, we're struggling to uh, offer our guests, our past guests, something new. So I'd always envisioned that Aqua Expeditions, which is connotes water-based expeditions, um, involves multiple destinations. So it was never at the onset my idea to just have a one destination product and a one destination company. Now the question was, usually traditionally, even pre-COVID, I would spend a good part of my year scouting new destinations around the world. So now I was offering river cruisers in the Peruvian Amazon, perfect complement to Machu Picchu and Cusco. Where could I replicate something like this? And traditionally people would say, well, I'll just go to Brazil because you can offer Amazon cruise in Brazil. Now, obviously that doesn't appeal if you wanna have a repeat clientele because our, my mindset, I'm sure yours is, okay, kids, you know, imagine yourself, you're going on holiday to South America. Well, in the last two days of your holiday, you're usually thinking about where you're going next year. And traditionally, our guests are off the charts thinking, okay, we did South America, let's do another part of the world. So I went to the Mekong, fell in love with the Mekong River all the way between Vietnam and Cambodia, which is the two sections we operate in, even though the Mekong starts in China and flows through multiple countries, as you know, you've lived there. And, and I saw an opportunity to actually replicate what, you know, the Machu Picchu of Southeast Asia, it's Siem Reap. Angkor Wat is obviously another world heritage site. It's the biggest religious complex of the world. And by no means do I claim to be the first river cruiser on the Mekong, but to our demographic, our guest expectations from a design perspective, from a guest experience perspective, we are the first one and still the only one at that level with private speed boats for excursions with nothing larger than eight guests and plying the waters of this beautiful two nations showing life on the river. So I decided to take a big leap, move. I, I hired Baker McKenzie, Deloitte and Touche to do a legal and financial due diligence of where to set up our global headquarters. It was between Hong Kong and Singapore. Singapore checked off all our boxes purely because I wanted to have a global organization. Whereas Hong Kong made sense at the time if you're gonna conduct mostly business in China. And so Singapore checked, checked our box from a professional, legal, and also from a personal side. I brought my family and kids. And in 2012, we moved to Singapore. We set up shop here. Our headquarters is globally now here. And to do that correctly with a vision to grow the business, um, it takes time. It takes a good six months of diligence to understand complexity, you know, ownership structures. I wanted a very transparent ownership. I didn't want a complicated ownership structure because I wanted to attract capital. I need access to capital markets. Singapore provided that access. But I also wanted to be able to travel a lot and lock up my home and feel comfortable leaving my wife and kids at any time, anywhere. So Singapore obviously checked all those boxes. So I moved to Vietnam. I left Peru, my, my, my chicken that was laying the golden eggs. I took a big leap of leaving as an, as an entrepreneur and the owner founder, leaving our core business to a group of individuals that today have proven themselves to be exemplary general managers and country managers. And that business was funding our growth, remember? So I, I, you have to kind of cut that cord at some point if you really want to grow, because I could have stayed in Peru and said, okay, I'll manage our business. I'll put another ship. Maybe we'll have one, two or three ships because the demand will be there, but it needed to excite me as well. And so to excite me, I needed to have a new challenge. And for me, setting up yards, building new ships, that's kind of what drives me. It's that, that, that being told no and getting a bunch of doors closed in my face and finding my way to get my way is really what, what, what drives me. So the move to Vietnam challenged me in many ways. Vietnam 
uh, is an incredible opportunity, but very difficult to conduct business if you're just arriving and want to set up shop there. But anyways, where there's a will, there's a way. I was surrounded by incredible consultants, incredible team that we started hiring. And we built Aquamica and launched it in 2014 and continues to this day plying the water between Vietnam and Cambodia, offering a quite different experience, but without undermining at all the core of our business, which is design, F&B, service, world-class guides, and, an air, and an, a focus on conservation in the area because we are still operating a very sensitive world, uh, sensitive world heritage site. So that, that was a big leap, one that I've never looked back on um, and very pleased with the results. Thank you, Francesco. But Aqua Blue and Aqua Nera, boat three and boat four, are relatively new. Is it possible to share a bit about where they operate and potential itineraries uh, if guests are to sign up onto one of these new boats? Gladly. So yes, if you think about it, we basically went into COVID with two ships and we're coming out of COVID with four. So <laughs> if, if there's a better confirmation, there's no better confirmation of my commitment, both to the company, to the sector, to the industry, and to, and to tourism, leisure tourism in general. So we are fully gung-ho uh, into this space and believe that we're very, very well positioned um, um, coming out of this. So, and, and, and luckily because of our size, we're able to have a good visibility into future bookings and future demand because we're not talking big numbers when we wanna fill our ships. We wanna fill our ships, all we need is 15 to 20 couples and that's it per week. So very manageable, yet it's that right audience that we vet in order to make sure that the on life, onboard life experiences is second to none because it's, 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 you know, the boats can be nice, the food can be great, but if the guides are no good and the, the guest experience is no good, the trip is no good. And true at that core is the guides. I personally select the guides. I make sure that every single excursion on any of our ships isn't offered unless I've personally experienced it, vetted it and secured it and made sure that it's up to par and up to our guest expectations and hopefully exceeds it. So yes, having launched Aquamecom, now we've got two ships, two opposite sides of the world, uh, offering like-minded guest experiences, but different parts of the world to, to deliver on that. Then comes my foray into exploring further afield and, and looking at Indonesia. So I was engaged in Bali, fell in love with the destination and saw an archipelago of 17,000 islands must have something beyond Bali. You think of Indonesia, they think of Bali and if uh, slightly a bit more adventurous, no Borobudur. Right. But beyond that, it's incredible that Bali is the most known destination in an island nation of 17,000 in high tide and 18,000 islands in low tide. So what lies beyond? Well, three key places lie beyond. And in line with Indonesia's tourism development plan, I went to explore Raja Ampat, which is in West Papua, kind of the world number one dive and snorkeling spot of the world today with the highest marine biodiversity in the world. I went to explore Komodo National Park, which is what? The Galapagos of Southeast Asia. And then I went to explore Ambon and the Spice Islands, which very few know of the history, but have an incredible, um, an incredible heritage of its, its place in global trade because the famous islands of the Spice Islands were the beginning of the Dutch East India Company, of the trade spice wars of nutmeg, mace, and cinnamon, and were the first explorer yacht to have scheduled departures in and out of the Spice Islands in the months of October and November. And that exploring these three parts of the world, I went with a Vanity Fair writer, I went with a guide that I hired and I explored on a local Finisi boat, these parts of the Indonesian archipelago, building itineraries and asking myself, why isn't somebody doing this at this level? And whilst there's great Finisi schooners, these traditional Indonesian wooden boats applying the waters there and some very beautiful ones, nothing with a steel hull global explorer that I wanted to put there and, uh, and build an itinerary. And with scheduled FIT departures, which for the common guest, FIT just means, it's a, it's a trade term that means, you know, scheduled departures where you buy the boat by cabin and not having to charter. Because now if you want to go to these parts of the world, you have to charter a boat. You have to charter a four or five, six cabin, but no one's doing scheduled. There's a few ships that come from around the world that will do one kind of transit trip through Indonesia, but not scheduled departures. So that was the why I fell in love with Aqua Blue. And that opened the door to the next chapter, which is, okay, do I build or buy? 
right? And so unless that's your next question, if I may ex explain that, that uh, so, so when you go into, so the two ships we have now, the Aqua, the Aqua Mekong and the, and the Adi Amazon are freshwater river cruisers, right? And you can't just go shopping for those. They're not available in the market. Not everybody has uh, luxury river boats to sell expedition, at least at, at our level. So, but when you go into coastal waterways, which is ocean going, uh, ocean going yachts, obviously there's a much bigger market out there. So before we design and build, which is typically what we've done, and I personally move out to the yard and supervise construction. I spent the last uh, of my 14 years, I spent four years in yards building. Um, I, I looked around and found an incredible yacht that was a private family yacht, but it had an incredible history of called uh, the Beagle, the HMS Beagle. So it was a Royal British Navy geographical survey boat in the Navy in the 70s, then became a private yacht by an Italian, well, it changed hands once before that to a captain. He converted to a private yacht and then an Italian family in Milan bought it and kept it and owned it and used it as a private yacht in the Med. I bought it from them in 2000 and uh, what are we, what are two years ago, two, three years ago, I bought it from them and bought it to Singapore and then refitted as a 15 cabin global explorer yacht. Beautiful heritage, incredible history, and brought it up to a, a world-class standards and launched it, navigated it from, Singapore, from Genoa to Singapore. It's a 40 day job, 45 day navigation with uh, through the Suez Canal, through the hot zone of Yemen and with security forces. And it did it on one fuel tank, one fuel tank, never refilled, and arrived to Singapore, spent four months in refit, and then uh, launched her in November 2019 into Spice Islands in Raja Ampat and Komodo. And, and now today she has birthed in Bali, ready and welcome to guests in June for our Komodo expeditions. So it's been an incredible journey, one that I fell in love with. And Aqua Blue is a true heritage global explorer with world-class 21st century comforts, but with a beautiful history. You know? Thank you, Francesco. So, Aqua Blue is in Bali, is that correct? And, and Aqua Nera is the boat which is heading back to the Amazon? Correct. So whilst all this is happening, obviously I'm always thinking ahead. And so uh, having just launched Aqua Blue, I was already into my second ship for the Amazon. So the Aqua Nera is our newest ship in the Amazon due to launch June 12th in that Peruvian Amazon of this year. So she was scheduled to be delivered to us. So I took another challenge and I decided to really throw a spanner in the works by saying, okay, well, this next cruiser for the Peruvian Amazon, we're actually gonna build in Vietnam. Why? Because we had our suppliers there, we had our yard there. I was in Asia and I was gonna be able to pop back and forth between Singapore and Ho Chi Minh. It's an hour and 15 minute flight. And it just all seemed like perfect logic, except for the fact that our, our intended destination is 11,000 nautical miles away where she will eventually call home. So how do we get her there? Well, there's only a few companies in the world that can actually heavy lift a transport ship like this, a river cruiser of 800 tons, transporter from Ho Chi Minh, where to, to Brazil, because that's the only entry point to the Amazon, and then navigate on its own 2,000 nautical, mile, nautical miles, the entire breadth of the Amazon up to Iquitos. So we, we had to finish building during COVID, during strict lockdown. I couldn't go to Ho Chi Minh. I couldn't supervisor, but luckily we had a good design and engineer team in, in, in Ho Chi Minh doing the entire process, take delivery of the Aquanera in August of last year and delivered her to, um, to Iquitos in December a few months ago. And she's now there, uh, ready and waiting to embark guests on June 12th uh, on her inaugural voyage. And that was another huge feat, probably never been done before, but uh, uh, it's a voyage video that I'll showcase in the coming weeks as we roll out that campaign but it was an incredible voyage, an incredible journey, and one that uh, I'll recall as a big, big feat that we accomplished. Well, chapeau and kudos to all the team to make such extraordinary achievements over, over COVID and, and I'll double the number of ships that you have. So my, my question now, if I'm a, a European or I'm an American, you've done exactly what you said. You're gonna bring more options, more itineraries, repeat factor, and if I've been before, but if I've never been, previously is there is there an order that you suggest that one should do or or i could just book any of your four four itineraries or excursions 
I mean, you're asking a father to choose who's his favorite kid, right? I mean, <laughs> it's not going to happen. However, um, if I if we did our job right in promoting and, and getting people excited, hopefully all four, all three destinations, well, maybe if you look at Indonesia, it's three different destinations because we operate three different parts of the country at different times of the year, three plus Vietnam, Cambodia as uh, one itinerary in Peru. If we have these five destinations, they should all be on people's bucket list because they're so different from each other. So yes, okay, do you want to start off in the Amazon? Do you want to start on the Mekong? One's more cultural, one's more wildlife, one's more water-based, one's more cultural in the, in the, in the Indonesia. The, the Spice Islands got a bit more culture, but the Raja Ampat has the birds of paradise and the blue the lagoons of Raja Ampat. The Komodo has uh, the whale sharks, the hikes, the Komodo dragon. So, I mean, goodness, uh, for me, it's hard to pick. I'd say I'd like to think that all four, all, all destinations appeal. I guess people would like to think maybe they'll go venture first into the one that's closest to their home. So as a European, you know, the Europeans travel to Asia in the winters, not, not sure why, because it's an all your destination, come over uh, to us during those months. Uh, the Americans and Canadians and Mexicans go south first and foray into Peru because it's become a culinary destination. People think of the Amazon, but a lot of our guests used to think, they think Amazon, they think heat and bugs. No, I'm not into heat and bugs and no thanks, but you know what they come and they're pleasantly surprised coming back thinking, wow, you know what? I've got more bugs in my backyard that in, in DC than I had an experience in Amazon because I'm on, on the river's edge. I'm always on speedboats doing my excursions. I've got a nice breeze and it's on the equator. So I think there's a, something that appeals to everybody. The more active ones that think, you know, there's this connotation that river cruising might be for your grandparents and it's more sedentary and it's boring. That's not true at all. Not even the European river cruisers are definitely up there anti doing a lot more active e-bikes and markets and Christmas tours and all that. But ours are definitely soft adventures. So you can be as active Active as you want on any of them. On our Mekong, you can basically do the entire Mekong trip by bike. Every excursion can be done by bike. And then you use the, our, our ship as a floating base camp and come back for meals. So I go on every single biking excursion on the Mekong. And so this, this communication uh, strategy is key in understanding that we've got to appeal to that family getaway, that private charter multi-generational trip, that, that active young family that's got kids that think, oh, maybe on a river cruise, my kids are going to get bored. Not at all. This is a huge family destination. All of them are. So no, there is no place. Hopefully they'll get to all of them and hopefully we'll continue delivering destinations that will keep that repeat revenue and loyalty um, you know, with our guests. And what strikes me about where you've got the destinations now and, and you've so eloquently presented them, but they're close to some of the world's most iconic heritage sites or resort venues. So they're perfect to do a seven day boat tour and pair it with then another destination in the region. So for example, if you were to do the Vietnam uh, Cambodia excursion, it could easily be paired with a week, week in uh, Koh Samui or Phuket or even in the boat, the beach locations of Cambodia and Vietnam now. But it looks like it would be a perfect pairing if, if someone's got enough vacation time or, and disposable income to do two or three weeks yeah. away. Yeah, I mean, obviously, cruising has always appealed to a clientele that wants to, you know, uh, know exactly how much they're going to spend. You know, we're not nickel and diming our guests. Once on board, everything is included. I mean, you know, well, there's very, there's always going to be good value perception for our guests, and there is definitely good value from the dining experience. We partner with some of the top chefs around the world in every destination to make sure that the the journey is not only on the ship but also the journey is through the palate. Because whilst we're not doing this fine tasting multiple dishes of dinners, we're doing these family kind of incredible culinary journeys uh, that our chefs have put together. You know, everything's been thought out. I want our guests to embark, and definitely my wife and I and us partners want our guests to embark on our ships thinking they're getting on a private yacht or a really curated boutique hotel where everything's been put there for a purpose. Everything has a story in our ships. I mean, if you look at our prints on the Aqua Blue, the prints on the Aqua Blue were original prints that we bought in New York at an auction house. There were 16th and 17th century lithographs, Dutch uh, lithographs of birds of paradise or maps of 
Dutch cartographers that we put on the book, the originals, the 16th, 17th century prints. On the Aquamecon, we've gotten Jim Thompson, you know, uh, the motifs, um, a pattern, the silks from, from Thailand to, uh, and all the pillows. We've, everything's been cured. All the Gaia, we have a supplier, <clears throat> make a good plug for him because he definitely deserves it, but a Balinese Italian uh, ceramic company that does Celadon plateware for some of the world's most exclusive clients does all our plateware and our plates are even gold rimmed plates on the aqua blue or even on the mekong and definitely now on the aquaneta the original design plates but with historical prints of russell wallace's illustrations on his book the malay archipelago that he did on on on, on marine life and bird life while exploring the 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 Wallace Sea and the and the Banda Sea in the 17th century. So there's every little detail has been thought out like this. And that attention to detail our clients appreciate. And that's what they look for. And that's what we will never cut corners in. That's superb attention to detail. Presumably those prints were where you still had aspirations to become a, an antiquity dealer in, in France somewhere. Yeah, yeah. I'd never made the connection, but yeah. So these were scouted by my, my wife and daughter in New York while I was doing sales calls a few years ago in New York. They went to a print shop in New York and they sat there and we spent the entire afternoon going through hundreds. And this guy who owns this print shop, it's been around about 100 years, was saying, wow, no one's come in looking for these. And we bought a lot, you know. As, a, as an enormously respected member of the both the luxury and experiential travel business, what, what have been your proudest moment to date? And then ultimately, how big would you like Aqua Expeditions to get? Is there a limit as to how many destination and boats you could get? Or, you know, what, what, how big do you see it ultimately becoming? Well, I think, um, you know, 14 years of running this business and growing this business is by no means a solo job. Today, I'm surrounded by a team of incredible professionals, about 200 strong. And I think the most thing, the thing that I'm most proud of is how seen all of them develop individually into their own space and how they help me now deliver on that promise and hopefully exceed guest expectations so by no means now you know i think my biggest legacy when that time comes is that if uh, you know i left peru and left the business in some country manager's hands and they continue delivering world-class service well that's a good legacy of a good leader right so today um you know whilst i'm not near i'm not disconnected by the business in any means i mean there's not one facet of the business that i'm not involved in i'm not i don't consider myself a micromanager by any means i definitely empower today and i help lead i lead through example at the end of the day i think i'm most proud of the team especially during the tough times trust me 14 years of running this business we haven't had our our bad days um, beyond bad days that we couldn't control like the global financial crisis in 2008 and obviously covid but beyond that we've also had our difficult days our dark days and it's during those days that i saw the team come together and make me most proud because we've had to handle all sorts of aspects and that's what i'm most proud of boats come and go they're constantly depreciating assets and so as we, we obviously take very good care of them because our our guests have a knack for perfection just as much as I do. So people can tell if there's a facade there and we're hiding something and we'd never cut corners and never, um, you know, and not spend where it's merited. As far as the business and the brand. So today I believe that I can claim that there's no brand out there that in our size, our space that has a global presence that owns and operates its fleet of small expedition ships. There's world-class companies, you know, Ponant and Limblad and all these companies that are obviously, you know, much bigger, bigger from a boat perspective, size of ship and guests, and, and also from a presence. But in our space, and I'll continue to be true to that space, which is a 15 to 20 cabins, no one has a global presence that, that uh, and has a brand. So, and the other thing is that as far as destinations are concerned, uh, our size ships can go in a lot of places. So when you're talking coastal cruising, well, there's places in the world that are yet to be discovered. Some are still there and not serviced well. There's places like the Kimberleys. There's just places uh, in Central and South America still. There's central places in Southeast Asia. I'm not gonna divulge, you're not gonna get anything out of me today, but definitely stay tuned because I've definitely got a few things up my sleeve and we'll be coming good on those. Francesco, you clearly talked about being a, having a very strong work ethic and, and being passionate. Are there any other personalities, traits and strengths that you feel have best positioned 
you to be able to develop this successful business? Yeah, by no means. I think I can forgo the fact that I have an incredible support system, both at home and in my partners. So as I mentioned, this business was founded by myself and my father-in-law. My father-in-law was CFO for the first few years and then rightly so deserved to retire, but still involved in the business. So Fred's been an incredible, not only source of inspiration, but leadership to me. Uh, not only does he have complete trust in my ability to run the business, but it's also been proven. But so definitely there from a support structure of my partners today, both from a financial partners and from, uh, you know, there's no, uh, uh, no qualm in accepting that you can't fuel the growth of this business with the right partners and both from a strategic to a financial partners and having those solid locked in that believe and share that vision with me are instrumental in allowing me to implement that vision. That's from a professional so a personal side. Uh, I have an incredible wife who's not only involved in the business, but supports me and, and encourages me and, and is there when I need that, that helping hand. And, and then an incredible network at home with my kids. I've got three incredible kids that are 21, 20, and 17 today. And uh, I've lived and lived in yards, lived um, following my passion around the world and, and believe in the business and are heavily involved. So I think heavily involved is in, in my sharing my vision. I think that is a huge component of allowing me to get to work and knowing that I can focus on that, knowing that everything else is good at home. So um, I think it's been a, a huge uh, benefit to be able to state that. Thank you, Francesco. So multi-generational travel has become a, obviously more and more important, but how about a multi-generational family business? So you just mentioned your three children. I know two are, at the world's top hotel management school, Lausanne. So would you ideally like them to, to follow in the, as a third generation in the, the family business or would you prefer that they develop independent careers separate from Aqua? I'll, I'll, uh, I'll let the chips fall where they may. Um, <clears throat> I think all we've done as parents is encourage them to follow their passion. And I was lucky enough to figure out what that passion was. I think relatively early on, not many people do. I think I'm blessed to know that um, I realized that early on and that hopefully that calling, uh, I, I seem to be relatively good at it. Uh, I probably do always a better job. But um, I'd like to same. I'd like to encourage the same thing amongst our kids. Go follow and try to figure out what you love. If that ends up being our space, no, I can't guarantee that the, that that space will be there for you particularly. But on the other hand, I've never said no and I haven't said yes, and they haven't asked and they haven't said. They we've alluded to a little bit. But right now it's early days. I think we all know that they need to go out and spread their wings and uh, and make their mark in the world. And with that right time and experience of that, if things fall where they may, and that leads them to working at Aqua or running Aqua, time will tell. Right now, there's definitely no pressure from us and there's no pressure from them. Uh, what we have only encourages to uh, follow um, your passion, try to figure out what you love and, and success will come thereafter. You describe in a lot of collateral and, and when you're talking um, aqua obviously like being boutique hotel experience but obviously on the water if you were to, to select a couple of hotels that you think would best replicate what the experience is like which, which hotels could you outline God, there's incredible brands out there from all perspective from the pre and post sales effort to the guest experience i guess one that embodies and one um, one brand that embodies a little bit and and not only from my perspective I think it's more the guests I listen to our guests I, I used to read all the common cards I'll be honest with you I don't read all the common cards now we're talking several thousands uh, of guests a year but I have a very good uh, very good feeling and a sense of, of what's going on both on board and from our guests and our trade clients so I if I if I use that their judgment i'd say on many cases uh we've been to refer to as a floating amman um and and because of the sense of space of the rooms because of the attention to detail because of the clean contemporary modern lines that still are timeless and do not 
cross that line of becoming modern that then becomes quickly uh, passe. And so finding that right balance is key to making sure that you can walk into a room and feel a sense of ease, feel a sense of peace, but still feel a sense of belonging and a feel a sense of place. And then also from the guest service side, you know, we claim and we deliver on the, every ship has a one-to-one -one crew to staff ratio. Now, whilst in a hotel that doesn't make huge waves, on a ship, it does because one to one on a ship is 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 an outlier. You know, we're an outlier in that respect. Where and so that level of attention that that just connotes a level of attention and personalization that we can do that is you know second to none on small ships like ours. So I, I'd like to think that um, and and you know, but there's many other brands that deliver world class service. And uh, for me, a huge reference from a lot of aspects is African safari lodges. For me, the real true foray into soft adventures was marked by our, our avid explorers in sub-Saharan Africa. And I've done 17 safaris now. And every time I learn more and, and from the guide, from the level of interpretation to the quality of the guides, the excursions to the uh, everything, um, Africa has been a big source of inspiration for me particularly. Thank you, Francesca. So you just mentioned 17 African safaris. You, you know Galapagos, you've been through South America, Asia, used to live in New York, London. Do you and your wife have any destinations left on your personal travel list that you haven't managed to visit or tick off as yet? Yeah, um, plenty. We've done many and many luckily with our kids that gives us incredible um, we're starting to double up now a little bit. So, you know, uh, we've got a lot of destinations that I would like to showcase to our kids, even though we've taken our kids everywhere with us, but there's still some that they haven't, they were too young to do the gorilla camps in, in, in Rwanda and the gorillas. So now they're old enough. So all these places we'd love to take our kids. Obviously my family is both American and Italian. Uh, Italy always has a sense of, of home for me. Um, I'd like to spend more time in Italy and explore a lot of Italy that I don't know um, and with our kids so that they always have that sense of calling to make sure that those ties with Italy where my dad lives with my brother brothers and sisters live. So definitely Rome is always luckily on the way somewhere or on the way back. So if you see it on the way to South America, we'll stop in Rome. On the way back, we'll stop in Rome. So I think Italy is always, you can never get tired of Italy. Uh, whilst it's not your, it actually can be quite exotic <laughs> in many cases because of just Italians have a way, but uh, we love Italy. We have a place in Italy and we foresee ourselves eventually spending in the future years, maybe a bit more time there. But for now, we've got our work cut out. Our kids are, you know, not demanding any ways of where they'll happily just get on our ships and just spend the entire summers hopping between Aqua Nera, Aqua Blue, and Aqua Mekong. If that was there, up to them. So, and and we call those homes as well. Thank you. So post COVID, you, you've managed to get out. But um, if if the restrictions weren't there, are there, is there any restaurant worldwide that you're missing and that you'd really like to take your wife for a meal? Yeah, so you, when you sent me those questions yesterday uh, or a few days ago, I looked at it and I was like, okay, I, I, I threw that one quickly out to my wife and I said, where would you like to go as a restaurant? She said Felice. Felice is our favorite, one of our favorite restaurants in Rome. They're known for this one classic dish called Cacio e Pepe, which is a classic Roman dish. And Felice is world renowned for uh, Cacio e Pepe. She said that. I said, on the other hand, Mercado. I said Mercado, which is Rafael Osterling's restaurant. It's a cevicheria in Lima. And they have this Mercado ceviche, which is a mixture of raw and cooked fish, uh, both the calamari and, um, and, and, and fish and, and paich, and not paich, and fish there in Lima. And so it's funny because she said an Italian restaurant and I said a Peruvian restaurant. But yeah, those are our two favorites. Uh, we have many, but Peru just always tops the list. Thank you. Some great restaurant recommendations and perfect that you've answered uh, for her and she's answered for you. So yeah. most people haven't managed to get away for a romantic trip. You've obviously managed to do 10 days with a surprise trip in Namibia. Pretend that hasn't happened. Where, where would you take your wife for a, a leisurely weekend post-COVID? Um, goodness, so many places. Obviously, I'd say that um, right now, pretty much uh, a destination that it's been coming up quite often is just uh, Como, Lake Como, 
in Italy. I think that um, my father is getting older, he's 87. I think his ability to travel is limited. And so if we can squeeze in a few days in Lake Como this summer, uh, we'd love to do that. It's close for him to come up and join us. So I'm not saying it's gonna be that exclusive romantic weekend, like you quickly alluded. I'd say my time in quarantine here is about as romantic as it gets here. We can be quite creative on, uh, on in-room dining and terraces and all that. But I think Lake Como as a, as a quick family get together uh, with my dad inclusive would be spectacular. And, and my concluding question was about clues in relation to your next boat and timeline. You, you obviously said that you wouldn't drop too many hints, but can you say, you, you, when we met before, you sort of had a plan to open or launch a new boat every X number of years. Is it possible just to share what that plan was so people could obviously know? Yep. So if you look at trajectory of delivery, um, basically, it takes me about a year to uh, six months to des fully design a, a ship. It takes about six months to a year. Uh, at the same time, you start vetting yards. Then it takes you about 12 to 14 months to build. And then at the same time, prior to that, you start marketing. So really, from concept to delivery, you're talking about three years of um, concept, build, design, uh, operate, and launch, right? Um, now, if you look at that, and we have four, uh, we've talking 12 years um four ships right so we launched aqua blue in 2019 right we've got aqua nera even though we launched the end of 2019 we only able to operate three months the season of rajampa then we went into uh um you know travel restrictions and now aqua nera being launched in june of this year but she was due to launch end of last year so we're slightly behind schedule but we're catching up so you can see that it doesn't go beyond three years from one launch to the next. So whilst I'm not telling you to hold your breath, but um, I would say that you've got something coming relatively soon. You know? But I'd like to fill the other ships that we have still quickly uh, before we deliver another one. But again, if the destinations are complementary, which they will be, uh, our past guests are there and they're quickly to pick up on booking our new destinations. Well, Francesco, thank you ever so much for sharing your inspiration story. It, it's really enticing. You've sold it really well. I'd love to be able to jump on one of your boats tomorrow. And uh, you know I'm biased, so it'd probably be Vietnam and Cambodia, so I could stop off and see some old friends and, and great, great places. But um, thank you. Good luck with the upcoming promotions of, of the new boats. And uh, Look forward to sharing your, your website, your particulars, and anything we could do to try and help make sure that you've got a massive uh, number of passengers for these maiden voyages. We'll do our best to support. Thank you, Gareth. Thank you. Uh, I remember fondly when we exchanged drinks in the raffles in Phnom Penh years ago. And uh, thanks for giving me an opportunity to share that story and hopefully get some people to uh, listen with, with uh, excitement and get excited about getting out there again and traveling. Right, and, and all the best for the remainder of the, the quarantine. And, and please pass on very best wishes to, to your wife, who's an integral part of the business also. Thanks. And good luck to you as well. And we'll be in touch, OK? Thank you so much. All the very best, Francesco. Mm -hmm.